0: Hi, everybody. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. We're popping in here with a very special announcement. For the month of March, we are releasing five new episodes, and we need your help. That's right. If you listen to Film Strip Podcast on Apple
1: Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, we need you to leave us a written review for the show. These help the show reach a bigger audience, and that is what we want to do. Expand the reach. Even if you listen on another platform, you can still write a review on Apple
0: Podcasts. So as a gift back to you for this, for every five-star written review we receive, we're opening up the suggestion box to you all. That's right. At the end of your review, leave a comment with a movie you want us to review. Only caveat is it has to be something we haven't already reviewed. For a list, check out the archives. So at the end of March we'll gather all the suggestions and we'll pull a winner out of the hat and review that movie in one of the coming summer months when we're usually doing our bi weekly release. We'll do a special bonus show. We know we need the reviews to help expand the show's reach, and we figured since we were asking for this, least we could do is take a suggestion from one of you for our future show. And so once again, leave us a five-star written review on Apple, CastBox, Google, or Stitcher sometime in the month of March. Suggest a movie you want us to review, and at the end of March, we'll pull the suggestions and select a bonus review from you, our fabulous audience.
1: Now, on with the show. Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section Five Hundred Four C Two, Title Seventeen.
0: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and I'm Ron. And this is our review of Horse Feathers, starring Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo Marx, Thelma Todd, and David Landau, directed by Norman MacLeod, released in 1932 by Paramount Pictures. So we are at the end of our Marx Madness, Marx Brothers retrospective here, Ron, and we've gone all the way back to 1932 now, and a movie that is considered, in all forms of cinephiledom an absolute classic. Yes,
1: that... Uh... That goes without saying. In fact, I believe that uh, a certain scene in this movie that we will talk about later was ESPN's, was on the ESPN top 10 uh, funniest sports scenes in movies.
0: Yes, it was. Yes, we will talk about that. In fact, that was the scene I knew from this movie, having, of course, never seen it. But I had seen that in that ESPN list back when they were, you know, real want to Put that kind of programming on and I imagine now you're going to get a lot more of that in the next few months with the way things are going around the world so uh, maybe it will come back up and we can talk about it but it's definitely apropos but again, like I said no no reference for this one, other than just sort of in broad strokes what it was about. And I have a lot of thoughts about it, man. As someone who spent 20 years now working in the field of higher education, I am <laughs> blown away at how this 90-year-old movie really has <laughs> nailed much of the politics that still exists today.
1: Yeah, one of the the best things about rewatching these Marx Brothers movies is just how, not necessarily timeless, because there's a lot of stuff that's of the time, but they're also pretty wildly, to me anyway, they're pretty wildly ahead of their time. And things like higher education and politics particularly don't necessarily change all that much, Yeah, (laughs) you know, to steal the, uh, to steal a quote from Richard Nixon on Futurama computers might be twice as fast as they were in 1978, but uh, the average voter is as drunk and stupid as ever.
0: I, you know, I also think uh, time is a flat circle, you know, and and I believe very firmly in that, but it is neat to see things (laughs) that still resonate with a movie that again was made in 1932 and made with a completely different set of sensibilities. And I mean, I, you know, I'm a big sports fan. So to my fellow sports fans that might be listening to this show, I got to tell you, like if you have a real ax to grind with the way the NCAA sort of selectively chooses to enforce its bylaws and stuff, when it comes (laughs) to college football, you need to watch this because that has been time immemorial. And this is proof of it in so many ways. I mean, this is not
1: that far off from, uh, several college sports point shaving scandals in general, point shaving scandals in general. So not necessarily point shaving is going on, but there there's definitely gamblers attempting to influence the outcome of the game, uh, which is a problem that is, you know, still current throughout pretty much all levels of sports. Well, I was just thinking of uh, Tim Donaghy.
0: Oh yeah, that yeah the real life stuff too. Yeah, you're right. I'm thinking of all the movies. I think of like blue chips, you know, Nick Nolte yelling at that kid while listening to Jimi Hendrix albums or whatever. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I rewatched that recently, so I, I had it in the front of my brain as I watched this, and I thought, oh holy cow, yeah, all this is still very much there. Or the yeah. guys that ran the McDonald's. Oh yeah, and I mean
1: here here in the great state of Kentucky, we have our own history of uh, FedEx packages full of money going to basketball players. <laughs>
0: I can't imagine why that would be the case, but yes, uh, it's definitely timely. Uh, but I do think it's neat to note of the time period of where the Marx Brothers are. This is the earliest of their Paramount days, right? Like this is them just starting their film career.
1: Oh, they've been in a few things before, but this is their, their. this is the first of their, or one of the first of their golden era uh I think the one I keep kept confusing it with all, all throughout the week of preparation for this, Animal Crackers is is the first of their golden era films, but uh this uh, this one remains one of their most popular ones for, for obvious reasons, I think. Because yeah, uh, I mean, like you said, yeah, it's a very t- it's very it holds up a mirror to academia and the politics therein that is surprisingly still relevant now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it re- it really does, and it shows light on a number of different issues. And it's also notable for a few specific scenes and things that we'll talk about as we get into it. But, I, you know, I can't imagine, again, there's a lot of people that probably haven't seen this one, Ron. So do tell us what Horse Feathers is all about.
1: All right, Jay, I sure will. Huxley College is a great institution of higher learning, but a terrible football program. Think Vanderbilt, but more hapless. When Professor Quincy Adams Wagstaff Groucho takes over as dean... His first order of business is to improve the football team and win Wagstaff's first game since 1888, with a little help from his son, Frank, Zeppo. Frank clues his father in on a couple of ringers who hang out at the local speakeasy, and after getting the address, Quincy heads off to hire the two goons. After some shenanigans with the guy watching the door, Baravelli, that's Chico, he recruits bootlegger Baravelli and dog catcher slash bootlegger Pinky Harpo to join his football team thinking that they're the two big superstars who are going to help Huxley win the rivalry game with Darwin. Meanwhile, a shady gambler named Jennings, David Landau, is conspiring with the college widow Connie, Thelma Todd, to seduce Frank, Quincy, or anyone else and get the plans for Huxley's football team. After some romantic shenanigans and several music performances, Wagstaff gets Pinky and Baravelli to go and kidnap the two ringers, or at least try to, Tables get turned and they end up getting locked away by the ringers and have to saw their way literally out of a boarding house and end up rushing to the game just in time to make it for the last quarter. Though, let's be honest, even if Darwin knew every play Huxley was going to run before they ran it, once the four March Brothers hit the field, it's every man for himself. Hijinks ensue, the hidden ball trick is run to perfection, Pinky bites a guy's finger like a hot dog, and eventually, thanks to a borrowed garbage cart being ridden like the USC chariot through the field, Huxley wins the big game, Jennings loses all his money, and the four Marx brothers make out like heroes as credits roll.
0: That's an excellent plot summary to get us through what is a... Really, a two gag show. Like honestly, it's Groucho uh, completely sending up higher education and talking about Zeppo as if he's you know so much years older than him, and he's his you know disappointing son, and him being kind of lecherous. That's all one subplot. And then we have um, uh, Harpo and Chico uh, running absolutely roughshod uh, through the rest (laughs) of the sets, Uh, Bugs Bunny style sawing through the floors. And I know Bugs stole it from them, so whatever. And then uh, the most hilarious football stuff I was surprised how much football there was Like at one point I thought Oh, that's just going to be like some stock footage And then they put them on the field And we're getting plays And Chico is talking so much trash I'm thinking back to the program And the big middle linebacker That was always talking about <laughs> What he was going to do to the running backs Mother, you know, I'm like, wow You know, I mean, it started back in the 30s So I guess that was, uh, that was how it goes back then
1: Yeah, everything's going to start somewhere and I imagine trash talking is a tradition as old as sports,
0: right? Yeah, you can imagine the Greco Romans uh, talking, talking major trash before they, you know, ran laps right around each other or whatever they did. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> say that part of history real well. But point being, we we have we have hilarity here uh, right out of the start. And what I love is that they, <laughs> the dean's entire purpose is to make sure the football program doesn't suck instead of like the other way around. That, that, you know, <laughs> And, but but I, I wanted to ask you something, because I noticed something about the Groucho appearance in this movie that I hadn't noticed before. He he has started a couple of these movies with his back to the camera, but this is the first time I've seen him applying or what appears to be applying that uh, painted on mustache thing. And is was that like part of his gag on stage and that they just brought it to the screen or what?
1: That I'm not sure of, but that is a pretty uh, that's a pretty funny bit. Most of these things started as stage shows, so I could definitely see that being. Uh, Groucho's big introduction on stage. It, it definitely he definitely makes an instant uh, an instant impression with that crazy mustache.
0: Yeah, I mean it. It does start, and I I love that we get the classic, or what I now know as the classic Groucho of turning a phrase and turning it on you at the same time. You know, this school is of high integrity. Well, that's this school's problem. You know, or something like that. You know, but it's just back and forth. It's that rapid fire bit. But th- that I've come to know him for. It's that's what's been so fun about doing a reverse retrospective. As I kind of saw like the end of it all, and now to see the early days of it, and it's almost like the workshop of what was to come with much longer narrative films, because these last two have been you're just a little bit over an hour. I mean, this one's barely 60 minutes long at this point when it's really into its its film part, and I'm surprised how well that, that he keeps that going and keeps that energy up.
1: And it's, it's actually pretty remarkable how energetic the whole movie is considering um, Chico uh, a really bad car accident and filled this with multiple broken ribs and a shattered knee.
0: Wow. And as much as he's up and down during the movie, that is amazing.
1: They had to, uh, this is one of the few times they actually used a body double, uh, for some of the football scenes. Um, and you could tell when it's, uh, Chico and when it's the body double, because the body double is way taller than Chico.
0: (laughs) Okay. I was going to ask you that. Did somebody steal his hat at some point in the football scenes, but now that explains it. Okay. That,
1: that yeah, no, that's, that's his, uh, his stunt double. Who is who towers over the rest of the Marx Brothers? I guess they couldn't find a short enough guy.
0: Yeah, well, now let me ask you. And probably let's be honest, like audiences in 1932 are not discerning that like we are, you know, because again, to rewatch it was another nickel, you know, at the theater. And I don't know if everybody remembers 1932. uh, That wasn't exactly you know what people did. So (laughs) you know, it's. Uh, so I, I don't know what that was like, but it's honestly just interesting to think about um, that they didn't care about you know, like continuity be damned. You know, who cares? Because nobody nobody really notices until you just run it back a couple.
1: Times. Yeah. And even if you do notice, it kind of fits in with uh, Groucho's mustache.
0: <laughs> and that's yeah, right. Of aesthetic. Yeah. It's just this uh, ultimate level of fakery anyway, which is a great metaphor for the whole thing about college and sports anyway, is that I don't know. What does this really mean? I don't know. You know, so, I mean, that's what it's all about. I do love that Groucho is playing the father to Zeppo here. And I wanted to ask you, like, what are their age differences? They're not that significant.
1: Weirdly, uh, Zeppo is 11 years younger than Groucho.
0: Still, though, that's not enough to be his adult son. <laughs> no, no, that's that's that's
1: uh, that's a lot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, but I'm watching this and I want to tell you, I've done this in every every uh, I've done this in every episode. And I just couldn't help myself but do it again. But I thought about, okay, what's my more modern or at least my idea of growing up modern uh, correlation to that. And I thought about what I consider to be a classic comedy of the eighties back to school and Rodney Dangerfield and Keith Gordon, Um, who I think Keith Gordon is, it was a good bit you know, younger than Rodney, but almost to the point that it's like Rodney Dangerfield has a kid that young, you know, so it's almost <laughs> the reverse of this. But I thought, I thought about that because a lot of Rodney Dangerfield, I do feel comes from Marx Brothers sensibilities. Like if the Marx Brothers had really been able to do what they wanted to do, they probably would have sounded a lot like what we know Rodney Dangerfield stand out of
1: yeah, they definitely would have because every movie, uh, every movie that the Marx Brothers made has several. Every movie has at least several jokes that didn't make it past the censors, including this one. And this one is a pre-code movie, so they're able to push it a little bit further than they normally would, or that they would have a few years later after the Hayes Act. But uh, there's still quite a bit of stuff that was cut out of the movie, uh, particularly stuff involving uh, Baravelle and the college widow Connie.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Connie for a minute because I feel like for the second movie in a row that we're talking about here now, we've got a different take on the female. We've got a femme fatale involved, right? Which is a different thing than maybe what we had had, we're used to in those later movies where it was more like female foibles and stuff like that and sort of s- the sweet girl next door. But the it, in these, you know, Duck Soup and in Horse Feathers, you've got a legit femme fatale as uh, an opposite. And Thelma Todd is pretty steamy, man. Yeah,
1: she is. She's both pretty uh, steamy and she is also uh, also was quite the accomplished comedian herself. She and Zazu Pitts were uh, put together by Hal Roach as a, like a female Laurel and Hardy type team. So mm. by the time she's in this movie, she's already a pretty well-established comedy star. So in that, in that sense, she kind of is like a solid Margaret Dumont type character, even if they're playing two completely different archetypes. You know, the stuffy widow versus the, uh, the hot to trot, uh, for lack of a better term, floozy sort
0: well, I mean, she's dre- She dresses like a floozy. She acts like a floozy. She's got men in and out of her bed. I'm not being sexist when I call her a floozy. I don't think that's unfair because Raquel Torres plays the same character in Duck Soup. You know, I mean, right. it's the same thing. She's just dark headed and 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 very confident too. I think that's the other thing that I I found uh, interesting was just how. She's not played like a moron. Like she clearly knows what she's doing and is involved in it and is willing to literally do anything she can use her feminine wiles, as it were, to get the plans to make sure this football team loses. It's certainly not the kind of
1: character you would expect from a 1930s comedy. Because she's not especially, she's not docile. We've seen the most of the, the women in Marx Brothers movie either be the butt of the jokes or to be, uh, you know, the romantic, part of the romantic lead pairing and the, the, the person that the Marx Brothers can rally around to help. Um, but in this case, she is a, a schemer and she is a troublemaker and she plays dumb when it suits her, but uh, the rest of the time she's as sharp as a tack. And she is as into this plot as anybody else would be.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about Jennings plot here, right? So he's got money on the the game and he definitely wants uh, Huxley to go down. So even so to the point that he's brought in ringers. But my question is for, for a team playing another team that hasn't won a game since 1888, why do you feel the need to go out of your way to cheat Darwin (laughs) and beat this team it would be like if alabama paid refs when they played like one of the cupcake sunbelt teams that they they knock off every year like it's not necessary you know like, you probably going to be okay otherwise
1: maybe he had to beat a really high over or maybe yeah the, I,
0: I, yeah they didn't really laid out the terms of the bet so i don't know what he was trying to to bet yeah uh, well of
1: course it's obviously not going to be a straight bet You're not going to take a straight bet on, well, I guess you might be able to take a straight bet on Darwin versus uh, Huxley, and you would have to put like $1,000 up to win 10 So either he took the over or he took the under and he wants to stack the defense or he, uh, or the spread is like 35 points or something ridiculous. And he wants to make sure they beat the spread.
0: Right. Or the way the game is played until the Marks brothers, you know, all get on the field together. Darwin is beating them 12 to nothing. I mean, they're grinding them to a halt. And part of me was like, is he got money on like a shutout and like the maybe the under on the points? So he wants Darwin to win, but like not cover i don't know i it, i and i don't necessarily need to know i just find it interesting that the plot is there's this gambler that's gonna th- you know make sure the game goes his way by hooker by crook and i'm like but it's over a team you beat all the time <laughs> <find> that's hilarious <laughs> which i think is part of the joke is that well cheating happens even when you don't think it should because that's what cheaters do it's like the dare mcgavin character in the natural that's telling robert redford like uh you know i once uh bet you know a lot of money on three pitch balls the guy beat me on it but i got him on the other side which means i hired barbara hershey to shoot you in a hotel later but i a <laughs> spoiler alert by the way but i mean really i felt like i was watching that again because it's from the same it's the same time period obviously that was made in the 80s but it felt the same and it felt true that that character obviously comes from some of this stuff
1: and honestly it's the games where a lot of the games where you see point shaving and, and those sort of gambling type shenanigans going on is when it's a heavily favored team playing little sisters of the poor and they they want to they know they can win but they just have to win by less than 30. Well and, and then they then you get the underbet and that's where all your money comes in and that's what you would make the arrangements for. So maybe they did have these two guys there to um, maybe they did have the two ringers to kind of bolster the defense. And that would be the whole thing about having their uh, signals, right? I mean, we saw that in uh, baseball last year. <laughs> when you know yeah. what the other team's going to throw, it makes it a lot easier.
0: Exactly. And we uh, banging trash cans, same thing. So the the Astros ripped off this. So that's <laughs> yeah, what we now know.
1: All, all we needed was like uh, one of the Astros players to come riding in on a garbage cart. <laughs>
0: Right? Yeah, I mean, that that would have been the, the perfect circle at that point. Maybe that was too on the nose for it, but I don't know. Maybe they didn't think people would. But we know because we study this stuff here. See, education, that's how we roll. But I also mentioned that, I mean, this is <clears throat> 12, 13 years after the Chicago Black Sox, you know, the, the Throne World Series, say it ain't so, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's still in the public consciousness mind because you got to understand, like, we follow sports nowadays very differently than the way it was followed back then. There wasn't this round-the-clock coverage and... And stuff. It was you read a newspaper and then you maybe got a news story the next day, right? But people just consumed it, you know, from the print. And baseball writers have the most power over of any set of journalists on a sport, maybe next to like boxing. But or professional wrestling, which isn't really a sport. But anyway, they, they have a ton of power in the the way that the story is shaped, even to this day. But back in the 1930s, man, they, they were how the story was shaped. So you could get why the sensibility would carry over people. That would still be fresh in people's mind when they were making this movie and doing this send-up. What I want to know is why the send up on higher education and sort of the stuffiness and the, you get the two associate deans or whatever going like we we've done these jobs for a number of years. We just haven't been paid yet, you know, or whatever, but we'll keep doing them because it's safety or whatever. That's a
1: great question.
0: And I'm not, I'm not sure what
1: was going on in the country at that time to uh, have people react. So, uh, uh, so much towards academia, i maybe, Maybe there was like a growing awareness of college uh, through the popularity of, you know, college football becoming a thing, I guess. Maybe that had maybe, you know, the first generation of GIs who came back from World War One who had nothing better to do all went and enrolled in college and were finally of the age where they could feel uh, nostalgic about their uh, Bula Bula years.
0: I mean, maybe it was. You know, it was also the the Great Depression. People go to college, and it seems like, oh, these you know people sit up in their stuffy ivory towers, and they don't really contribute anything to society. I mean, people say this today about college and the college environment, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's different. So it, I just think it's funny the way that all the humor is about. How superficial all of the experience really is, but how when you say it in a stern voice and with a you know broad chest and you have a robo and all of a sudden you're some sort of expert, and to no better be examined than the classroom scene where Harpo, Chico, and 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 Groucho go to absolute hell on this poor biology professor or whatever he is doing. Like it, I mean, we've got everything in that. There's all kinds of gaps.
1: <laughs> yeah. That movie is uh, just chock full of stuff, and it's pretty, it's pretty great. Um, yeah, uh, if it's not for um, when it's not Harpo and Chico, then Groucho comes in and also joins in running the guy ragging. And I have to say, this is some of this movie contains some of the most savage Groucho one liners of any of the Marx Brothers movies. Like he is just letting people have it with both barrels. It's
0: amazing. Yeah, he is throwing daggers in this one, man. I was like, Groucho, don't hurt him. I mean, come (laughs) on. I mean, no, he is really savage. And I think that's part of what happens because you have Chico doing like the Italiano accent, uh, which we saw in Duck Soup, which had been dropped for Day at the Races and Night at the Opera, that we saw. But he's doing that and he's playing that up heavy, heavy, heavy. And then you've got, Pinky, which I have now decided that character is the one constant in all of these movies. These other people are just different people that sort of look similar, but that one guy has just Mm -hmm. fallen through all of this somehow, because it would be the kind of person, like the Jerry Lewis character that just fell through all those movies for years. They're all part of the same universe. And he is kind
1: of the constant because he is sort of the immortal trickster god character. I mean, he he gets so much use out of hammer space in this movie. Like he's just pulling. I mean, he pulls a steaming hot cup of coffee out of his pocket. He pulls an axe out of his jacket, this jacket that's mostly rags, by the way, uh, uh, just to chop some cards in half. And that's an actual axe he pulls out and chops the cards with because it leaves a big indent on the table. That's not a, that's not a gimmick. And those aren't gimmick cards. He literally chops a deck of cards in half.
0: I mean, that that's the sign of a performer that has done that gag a hundred thousand times. And now it's just getting recorded on celluloid. That was just part of the gig. And the thing I found about Harpo is he's always silent as we know. Um, it, he gets a great musical moment. That was the thing that was kind of missing from duck soup is there really wasn't a musical moment, but really all three of the guys get a, a, a big musical number. This we'll talk about Groucho's in a sec, but we get him playing his harp. He, you pull out the hot cup of coffee. I, when I saw him do that, I had to wind it back and go, how did, how did he pull that off? Cause it's real coffee. Like that's a real thing. And I'm like, how did you do that? And you can see him kind of just going to take a little sidestep, please don't let that spill. That's going to hurt you know, and, and <laughs> hand it to the, you know, the extra, like help a fill out. Here you go. You know, and okay, I got some coffee. Goodbye. Uh, but him as the dog catcher is sort of the proto version of making that poor peanut vendor, you know, go insane in the in duck suit.
1: <laughs> when he lures the cop into, <laughs> I don't even know if it, you would count it as luring the cop or if the cop just gets in there and he takes advantage of the situation when he locks the cop up in the uh, dog catching wagon. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. He is. I think you've nailed it. He is Loki. He is a total prankster, constantly pulling the strings and and just pulling the pins on the grenades. You know, that's what he's there to do. I mean, down from that to at the end, he's eating the hot dogs as he's running down the field with the hidden ball. And, he, you know, he puts the, the bun around the one dude's finger and bites it, really you know, bites it off. You know, I mean, they run that gag as far as they can with it. Um, and I, I thought Harpo had great moments he, and they just get the great, you know, he's, he's throwing rocks up to Thelma Todd. There's like an undercurrent here. Cause we didn't talk about it in the plot summary at the end. I think all four of them marry her, which we're going to talk about in a minute you know, when we get there, <laughs> yeah. but they all like swoon her at one time or another. And his way of doing it is playing that harp again. So we get like a four or five minute harp interlude here from, uh, from good old Harpo. And it's good. I mean, it's, it's classic Harpo.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really good. And, uh, I was
0: pleasantly surprised by Thelma Todd's,
1: uh, singing voice too. Not terrible. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. just,
1: you know, but, <laughs> but, uh, Ch- Chico, Chico coldly dismissing her and telling her, maybe you watch it. I'll sing.
0: <laughs> just, exactly. Right. I, I love that. Me. I love it because then he launched into that piano bit and I realized something that I'd not talked about in these previous shows. I don't know if I can prove it, but I'm going to go dig it up on Google when we're done talking here. I think Jerry Lee Lewis was a big March Brothers fan. He had to be because he bangs a piano the same way Chico does if you watch it. And I mean, the way he plays and the way his big fingers just sort of, they look like they're just slapping the keys, but it's just making this beautiful sound. It's, it's fantastic to watch. It's one of the, it's, I think it's my favorite piano scene of all the ones I've seen him do now.
1: And Jerry Lee Lewis, and I haven't noticed this before now, he does the finger guns, too. Yes. Because he's, he's the killer. Exactly, right? And not so and I, not just of two of his wives. Well, let's not talk about it. So, <laughs> Save that for Disgrace uh, Lance.
0: Did he kill? Did he kill? Well, I didn't know that, so yeah.
1: Uh, he, he did. Oh, I <laughs> <Well, had> nerd, <laughs> no one's arrested him for it, but uh, you know, oh. it, 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 all the evidence seems to suggest that. And if you oh. believe the dude from Disgrace Land, that is a thing that happened.
0: Oh, wow, I'll have to go and try that because I was not aware. So, um, I just knew about the, the teenage cousin and he tried to and he tried to kill Elvis. I did know that. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was kind of obvious. I mean, look, you know, Kurt Russell plays you in a biopic Elvis of the many people that have played him, you know, that's. That's a level of cool that few can attain. Cheerily, Lewis got Dennis Quaid. I mean, <laughs> you know, some things just work <laughs> out for poetic justice. So. Been Randy
1: Quaid?
0: Yeah, <laughs> could could have been. And uh yeah, though now I want Randy Quaid to have played Jimmy Swaggart in that movie instead of Alec Baldwin. That would have been. Oh, around. that would be good. All that right. would actually work. That would have worked a lot better. I'm just recasting Great Balls of Fire. Yeah,
1: welcome for- back to the recastables.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is. Completely talk about movies that we're not talking about. Anyway, Chico and Jerry Lewis placed out there. I lo- I, I caught the same line you did. Maybe you should just watch me do it. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I thought that was funny. But what's funny is to watch her try to not like break in front of these guys. And that that to me is such a, a classic comedy thing. And there's you know there's reels of it on YouTube of SNL people breaking each other up and Second City and Carol Burnett and all these shows going all the way back. And you watch her just try to hold it together while they're trying to get the take done, and of course the Marx Brothers are just like what you know, <laughs> and they're they're so far ahead on her. You can you
1: can especially see it in any of the scenes where the Marx Brothers try to kiss her, uh, especially uh, <laughs> when Chico is on the couch with her. She is she turns away from the camera to hide her laughter, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she won't ruin the take. It's really it's really well done because I didn't I've it's not something I've noticed until recently that that especially in that particular scene. But throughout that whole scene, she is uh, struggling to to hold it together. And uh, and credit to her, uh, I don't know how many takes she probably ruined, but uh, she got one. And I think that's more than I could have done.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, the way that they even got through it at all, is what's amazing. And we should talk about like all four of these guys at one time or another try to romance this lady. And they don't realize that she is playing all of them for the same gambler's purpose, right? She's got Zeppo on the the take, which is he part of the football team anyway? So that was part of the end?
1: Yes, he was part of the football team.
0: Okay, so you got that. Now you've got his dad, the dean, who's trying to romance you. That's a lifetime movie, by the way. Um, Yeah, I mean, really? Come on, that was that's okay, sure. Um, So you got that, and then you got the two idiots um, who are coming after her too. And I'm like, this woman gets a lot of attention, and she plays them all a little differently. Like, I she acts the most quote normal with Zeppo, I think. She Mm -hmm. acts kind of like the little, I don't know, I I don't know how to say it. Like she does a lot of the baby talk with Groucho, which he has great Mm -hmm. responses to. And then she just seems to sort of musically swoon to the other two guys. That's that's the end.
1: Yeah, she uh, she tries the baby talk on Groucho, but it doesn't really seem to it seems to have the opposite effect.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically tells her he's going to drown her if she keeps it up or something like that because they're in a canoe together. It's going to kick her
1: teeth down her throat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Even worse, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this because this is a total reverse scene. Because in the romantic story, the lady's laying up front and is humming a tune while the man, the big strong man, you know, wipes the canoe down the (laughs) river. And no, this woman is canoeing down the river while Groucho is playing a guitar. What's up with that? Uh, Groucho secretly was a
1: huge guitar fan. Uh, all the all the brothers played some sort of instrument. Uh, some of them, several instruments. But this is the first time you really get to hear Groucho playing the guitar, and it's kind of undersold here because he's not really. It's not really in the character to be proficient at a thing to that yeah. degree. But uh, he was actually a pretty accomplished classical guitar player and a huge guitar fan.
0: I do love how he's at the end of it saying he plays and he just chucks it into the lake or whatever. <laughs> you know, just like twink, down with that prop. And then there's an actual duck following her, which is there. <laughs> but I like it. I like him and her here together. I will say this for most of the time when they put these women across, like Margaret Dumont has a chemistry with them that is all about comedic timing and things like that. Raquel Torres was just again sort of in the shadows in Duck Soup, so I don't really know how to talk about her. This woman, Thelma Todd, has like genuine chemistry with each of these guys, and it works on different levels. That's that's hard thing to do for an actress to be able to play four different people and And react to them three different ways.
1: Yeah, and it's and she's got a different. There's a different vibe to her with every one of the Marx Brothers, which is pretty, which is pretty impressive, uh, to be honest. Because uh, it feels genuine in every case, and you can see how she was so successful uh, at at least getting into Frank and uh, Wagstaff's good graces. Oh yeah, because, easily because there's a couple she's, of when, hits, so. Oh yeah, and when like when Harpo is down there uh, uh, throwing the rocks, and she comes out and sees him, she lights this big old smile on her face, and she has a cute little wave, and then he goes off to play the harp for her, and she's there enthralled, and it's it's a really effective like. Long distance courtship because she's charmed by his his uh, she's clearly charmed by his fun quirks and his strange whimsy, I guess.
0: I think we would have made it a complete circle for me because she has a different energy when she's with Landau Cause she's clearly in on it. Like, Muah, ha, ha, ha. you know, she's, <laughs> right. she's just as evil, but what, what I'd love to have seen is her to turn on him some way in the movie. I think that kind of happens, but it doesn't really get established. I would have loved to have seen her do that because I think Thelma Todd had the range to do that. And it would have been a fun thing to see her character actually go, no, here are the real plays. And by the way, you know, lug number one player that they've hired or whatever, doesn't tie his left shoe or some nonsense.
1: No, that would have been an interesting development, but I think that would be a little too
0: much plot for a Marx Brothers
1: movie.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm asking them to do something that they refuse to do. I mean, again, they're at the height of their anarchy powers here, so uh, the fact that there's any plot at all is amazing. I dare say. That plot summary you wrote, that, that's that's about as good a three-line as we've ever had with one, maybe next to like after last season or The Room, where there's really no plot. Or The Refrigerator, <laughs> you know, something like that in the archives. But yeah, it's there's really no plot. It's all about the craziness, and it comes down to that football game. And like I said in the opening, I was really impressed by how much of the football we actually got. I didn't think we were really going to get any, but we got a good solid 15 minutes of that.
1: Yeah, and we saw them actually running plays, which was which is wild.
0: <laughs> we, and I got to say again, man, as a guy who, who did a little high school football on the radio and stuff like that, the team that I used to do some of that stuff for ran this offense in 2018 and all that kinds of, stuff. they ran the Notre Dame box that, I mean, and Whoa. it was as simple as you think it is. And you know what? They still won 12 games doing it. Nobody could do anything about it when it's done right. And I loved watching that. Because, again, as a fan of the game and still seeing teams do that to this day, it's kind of funny.
1: Yeah. When uh, the NCAA football games were a thing, I would always have a at least one (laughs) at least one like uh, single wing formation or a triple option formation uh, with the two wingbacks. Because uh, nothing quite as there's nothing quite as satisfying as breaking off like a 10 yard gain uh, on a on an option type play. Oh yeah. And, it's and yeah, I mean there's a reason that the service academy still run those. And you know, yep. Paul Johnson.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's a reason people still go to that and it's fun to watch them do it though, because I think the, the best one is Chico is the one calling all the plays out. And it's always some like random rhyme. well, we think we go left this time, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> and I I love his little cadence because he never breaks face. He's always just dead serious. He's just straight ahead with it, but it's some of the goofiest stuff you hear in the whole movie.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's he, of course he's the brother who gets the goofiest things in the, to, to say anyway, next to Groucho or possibly goofier than Groucho. Because at least Groucho is able to be bemused by the things that Chico says. But Chico has to keep it straight the whole time.
0: Yeah, that's that's the genius of Chico's comedy is that he can be just as snarky and just as you know turn the comeback on you as groucho but he never smiles he never he never frowns either he never really breaks the straight role he just he just sort of throws it out there and he also uses those turns of phrase you know the like oh if you you know got a winnebago no nah, i never seen one of those go by you know or whatever it is you know, some of those different lines that he's got and uh, so, to be better no better evidence than when they're at the speakeasy and they're doing the whole like the password <laughs> the sword thing and I love that. I love that whole bit. Is is what? Go look that up, Buzz. It's like, you know, uh, horse feathers, swordfish, and you'll find that clip. And it is it is hilarious.
1: Yeah, that's that's really funny, and and I'm laughing just thinking about it because it's they they just cram so many puns. There's a different pun in every line, and it's amazing because you know it starts out with uh, <laughs> you know aspirin. I mean, you gotta remember what calomel is. It was like a nineteen twenties like. If you look up what calomel is, it's basically like BC headache powder, uh, that kind of drug. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that leads right into the. I'd walk a mile for a. The the I'd walk a mile for a camel reference to cam, camel cigarettes, old old school slogan from back in the day. And if you just if you look up some of this stuff, that's gonna whiz past you. It's gonna it makes these exchanges even like even more rewarding
0: Yeah. And the thing I'll say, though, is even in 2020, if you don't know what any of that stuff is, it's okay because the way they're doing it and they work off of one another and one dovetails into the other into the other. It's like watching. Well, I'll use my wrestling reference here again. It's like watching two wrestlers just do move after move after move after move. And they call it chain wrestling where they just they, you know, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat used to do this all the time together where they'd go from one hold to the next to the next to the next to the next to the next. And then, boom, somebody would hit the mat. And it would blow people's minds just how fluid it was. That's these guys with language. And th- I think that's the thing I've learned to appreciate about them through these four films we've watched. Is just how good they can turn phrase with each other. And, I mean, it's years of working together. It's also being family. It's just they have a rhythm that you can't replicate of them. And,
1: and there's stuff in there that you won't even notice unless you, uh, unless you give it some serious thought. Because, all right, so... Every time Groucho would come into the room to romance the college widow, he would take his shoes off. Right. Right. Well, those were overshoes. Overshoes are off. Were often called the galoshes, or if you had an old grandmother like I did, rubbers.
0: <laughs> yes. And
1: yes. rubbers. Uh, rubbers was a slang then. Uh, was a slang word for the same thing then as it was now. So every time he comes in, he takes his shoes off. It's like he's getting ready to to. We're all dogging. Well, I
0: mean, look, it's, it, we talked about the innuendo that's hidden in these movies, it's right there. I mean, I don't, I don't know that Day at the Races and Night at the Opera, they were definitely postcode. So there's a little less of it, but those are still there. But these two movies, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup, it's all over these movies from the way, not only the way that the women dress in it, but just the way that everything gets presented, the words that get used, stuff like that. It's, I mean, it's body humor. And that's vaudeville. Vaudeville was full of that.
1: Yeah, you could you could get away with dirty jokes on the stage.
0: Yeah, I mean really that was what it was all about. The, the game though is so amazing. You got Groucho smoking a cigar in between like tackles, which is great. And all this stuff. And then you get the great hidden ball trick where they they take the the carriage, the garbage wagon down the field and like I love how they get scores for every ball they pull out and just lay on the field. I'm like, "Dang, Tom Brady shouldn't have done deflate gate. He should have gone for that." <laughs> yeah. yeah. He,
1: he should have hit the balls in a Gatorade bucket or something and just hit <laughs> And it brought in, oh, don't give Bill Belichick ideas. He's going to have to work harder to replace that missing uh, deflate gate touch.
0: This is true. This is true.
1: Speaking of uh, speaking of stealing the other team's uh, playbooks.
0: Yeah, exactly. Wow. And see how relevant all of this is? It just totally. But I love the end. I, lo- I love the whole chariot bit. The whole thing uh, is hilarious and funny. And it leads us to an ending that I got questions about, Ron. Um, generally when we see polygamy uh, demonstrated in, in <laughs> art, it's the other way around. It's very, uh, masculine centric, shall we say it's a man with multiple wives, right? Mm-hmm. I, I guess it could go the other way, right? It could be a wife with multiple husbands because that's what they pass off at the end of this. It looks like Zeppo is mirroring Thelma Todd and the other three are the best men, but nope, they're all just in line with him, which is, that's, I mean, that's kind of weird, and I don't know. You do your life, but I didn't expect to see that in this movie. And also, Thelma Todd's reaction when they attack her is like, I, did, I didn't see this coming. Please stop. Don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: they definitely, uh, they definitely catch her by surprise. But it's funny because uh, Landau, uh, David Landau, was involved in a, uh, there was a bigamy scandal involving him in like the early 1900s. So he had some experience with uh, multiple marriages.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Well, there's one thing: is multiple marriages. It's to be married to multiple people at once, and it not be traditionally what we consider to be polygamy. That's what I'm going like. Well, we're. We just decided to go completely different. I know it's a hijinks and, and goofy comedy, so nobody takes it seriously. But I do find that interesting that in nineteen thirty-two that's the end of this movie. This woman just marries all four of these guys because she's bewitched by them. Well, she marries at
1: least one of them. I'm not sure who. And if you can figure out which one she actually gets married to, I will be very surprised. <laughs> but but yeah. it is a but it is an indelible uh kind of an image because you've got Mostly Groucho, Arbo, and Chico mugging for the camera, and poor Zeppo gets kind of pushed to the side. Although, although, yeah. Zeppo, although Zeppo seems like the one, or Zeppo or, or Frank, seems like the one she had the most uh, romantic
0: connection to. Um, At least the longest period with, because you know, he's with her all the time, so much that Groucho's character, Wagstaff, is disappointed in him for it, uh, but only because <laughs> he wanted her, too, so, which is whatever. It's very strange. It's it, This is a weird love quadrangle. Um, that I didn't expect that I was gonna get in this movie, but uh, I did. so there, there it was. It's kind of like the Notre Dame box, but in real life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's it's, it's, a, it's a really strange ending and you're right. I, I, I try not to think about it too much because it's a it's a, an alternative lifestyle I don't think I, I, I'm equipped to to come to terms with, particularly since it involves a father and a son and and, yeah. immortal, and an immortal trickster god. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, there's there's strangeness going around on that that we just don't need to touch anymore. I probably made this this very strange and uncomfortable for everyone, but hey, that's the spirit of the March Brothers. So, well, it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for the movie. So, Ron, what are yours for Horse Feather? Uh,
1: I have to go with an extra large popcorn. I had a blast with this movie, and it was a lot of fun to uh, kind of sit back and take it all in and to notice things uh, on this viewing that I'd never noticed before, and I've watched this movie quite a lot, I've watched the, uh, I've, I've watched the uh, football scene more than anything. Uh, between the football scene and the swordfish scene, this has some of the most classic Marx Brothers lines and classic Marx Brothers bits out of any of the films. And it, there's a reason why it's one of the 100 funniest movies of all time. There's a reason why it's got one of the 100 best movie quotes on the AFI 100 years list. Uh, you know, this is a great movie, and it it is weirdly relevant to two days to uh, life today uh, in a in a very strange way. Because uh, you know, we being modern people are are much more hip to the ways of gambling just by growing up in a post Jimmy the Greek world. But it, it's weird to see that the kind of stuff that was going on then is the kind of stuff that still goes on in sports today.
0: Oh, except, absolutely!
1: Except not as many garbage canned chariots but you know (laughs) give give bill belichick an off season to work on it knowing a little something about the bourbon industry as i do being from kentucky the Mm -hmm. scene where (laughs) where chico uses the same big bottle of hooch to fill both the bottle of scotch and the bottle of rye yeah i I lost it Uh, that yeah
0: yeah i I thought that might hit home a little close for you
1: (laughs) i was like i'll I'll see what you're doing heaven hill
0: (laughs) exactly I I echo you on that, man. It is one of those timeless pieces. I mean, that scene alone, a picture of it made time magazines cover in 1932. That's how big a deal this was. And it's been so fun to go back and talk about these movies because of all the things, again, we've talked about that they influenced and that, or just outright stolen from them, you know, through the years. Uh, it's been astounding. And this is right up there. And I see why people love this movie. It's full of great gags. It doesn't have a scene as impactful as that mirror scene from Duck Soup. I mean, that is just comedy, you know, platinum and, and diamond in, in my life. But I, this, the swordfish scene is great. And it's the precursor of so many great things to come. The you know, one to think about like the, the stateroom scene and night at the opera and some of the other things that they pull off. Uh, sort of the genesis of are right here and then the football stuff is great and the send up on higher education is still timely and funny it's an extra large popcorn as well this has been one of the highest rated series we've ever done <laughs> in film strip history in almost 10 years I don't think we've done anything less than a large popcorn on any of these movies and so it's been really fun to go back and talk about them and it wraps up an interesting march it's Mark's Madness and I mean goodness gracious a lot has changed in the world we all are aware of that and so we hope you guys have enjoyed this and had a good laugh with us along the way and uh, enjoyed what we put out here because it's been a fun retrospective. So, Ron, tell folks how they can follow you on the social media and what you've got going on uh, writing over at Den of Geek right now.
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hollywood Ron. Uh, you can read my writings at Den of Geek right now. I will be working on The Walking Dead and Westworld at the same time. Uh, So there's a lot of unreality happening in my world, and I will no doubt have many other things uh, waiting, including after this goes live, it will be a couple weeks, and then I will be doing the weekly uh, review slash recap of the new Walking Dead young adult-themed series, uh, World Beyond. So check that out if you like zombies meets, uh, well, I'm not sure what it's going to meet yet, but I'm going to hazard a guess and say zombies meet Riverdale, but uh, (laughs) not not, uh, Afterlife with Archie type, but close enough.
0: Folks, again, you can find more episodes on our website, Filmstrippodcast.com, as well as feeds to everywhere you can subscribe and download the show. Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. You can follow the show's social media at Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and also Podcast on Facebook. We appreciate your support. Stay safe, everybody out there. Have a good laugh. Enjoy podcasts. And we'll be back again soon. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip.